1: Missed the show, no worries. On point am pointing on this podcast, the politics of this freedom convoy that's trucking across the country. The catalyst for this convoy, of course, started with vaccine mandates, but it's morphed into something much, much bigger and has become very politicized. And, of course, it's also attracting the extremists who threaten to derail a very real anger in this country that should be heard. So we will talk about that. One of the big issues this convoy is fighting is mask mandates. We'll hear a lot that, you know, what's the big deal of kids wearing masks? Well, research is starting to emerge out of the UK showing, yes, toddlers and younger kids are starting to show delayed speech development because they can't see people's faces. We know masks don't stop the spread of COVID, but they are hurting kids. So why do we still insist on using them? What did we learn from SARS? Bugger all. The reports were issued, recommendations made, and here we are on the second anniversary of the first COVID case reported in this country, and those in charge at all levels failed to roll out any of the recommendations made 15 years ago, and we have paid for it dearly. In five months to the election, the Ford government appears ready to sign a deal with the Trudeau government on $10 a day daycare. We already pay 3.6 billion for all day kindergarten in this province, costs that then ballooned from 1 billion, But this policy won't help those who, let's say, do shift work and don't work Monday to Friday, nine to five. This may be good politics, but is it good policy that we can afford? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson.
0: Drop the mandates across the board for every single man, woman, and child across Canada. We've dealt with this for two years. You said two weeks to flatten the curve. We're two years later.
2: We don't want them telling us what to do right? You're supposed to run the country, but let us make our own choices when it comes to our health.
1: A truck convoy for the people is getting hijacked by those who have their own agenda. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, January 25th. It is great to have you here as we are on the second anniversary of this COVID crap. Yes, two years ago today, I remember it like it was two years ago. But this is the day we reported our first COVID case in this country, even though we, I think we all know it was here way before. But then, of course, right after that, we got all the uh, talking points. we prepared. We had SARS to prepare us. And then it was all a lie. They did nothing to prepare. And uh, we've been paying for this ever since. And that is why people across this country are fed up. And I'm not sure if you've been uh, seeing the pictures But these trucking convoys rolling across the country are are quite a sight to see. I mean, miles and miles of big rigs, bumper to bumper, as far as the eye can see. It's almost like, and then you go to the overpasses and the highways, and there are people all over watching them go by. And they're coming in from Alberta, B.C., Saskatchewan. They're coming in from the east. They're coming in from the U.S., And when you look at the numbers, 61,000 last check, I mean, I keep checking and it keeps just boosting up as 61,000 have now donated $4.7 million to a GoFundMe campaign that was uh, said to be frozen. And even with questions being raised, like, where's the money going? The money just keeps rolling in. So people care about this cause. And when you, you know, whether or not you agree with the convoy or not, it is not stopping. And I don't think it should be out. It should absolutely not be written off as an anti-vax protest because most truckers in this country are fully vaccinated. 90% of Canadians are fully vaccinated. The anti-vaxxers might make the most noise, but they're not the face of this convoy. I mean, vaccine mandates were the catalyst for this, but this thing has... Turned into a movement pushing against all government overreach, all mandates. Everything from the destructive and nonsensical rules on masking, lockdowns. It's about what happens, you know, been going on with our kids for the last couple of years. It's about small businesses that have been destroyed, rising energy costs. Those in the West who have been, you know, feeling maligned and alienated by a prime minister whose uh, policies clearly favor the East. So it's not about one issue. And if you want to find the crazies in this protest, you will find them. I've covered countless protests in my career. And I assure you that there is always nuttery that latches onto these things. There will always be a group that attaches themselves to a protest, hoping that they can push their own agenda. That doesn't mean you brush all of these people with the same brush, because all that does Is fuel the politicians who have created a lot of this anger, and of course, because the rule in politics is never let a good crisis go to waste, they aren't. I mean, Justin Trudeau has masterfully turned this into a, you know, an us versus them fight. He's demonized truckers and anyone who supports, you know, them for his political gain. He was against vaccine mandates right up until the election. He's on record. So this is not about science, It's not about data, it's not about safety and it's not even about what public health recommended because they stated Friday that they're against vaccine mandates. The reality is he needed a wedge issue. He needed to wedge Aaron O'Toole and vaccine mandates were the weapon of choice. And because O'Toole has been, you know, utterly feckless in coming up with a coherent response, the wedge has worked. And O'Toole has been scared to take a position on anything. He just doesn't say anything. He was asked eight times on Monday, do you support the truckers and will you meet with them? And here was the answer he kept giving.
0: You won't say whether you support them. You won't say whether you will meet with them. So what should Canadians think about your position? Do you not support the trucking convoy?
2: I support getting as many people vaccinated as possible, including truckers. And I've probably, with the exception of a few doctors who are on TV every day, I've probably encouraged vaccination more than any Canadian.
1: Dumb answer. otoole has got several MPs out there talking about the convoy, and yet he can't bring himself to answer a basic question. And it's because he's fearful of what happened to Andrew Scheer, who got eviscerated for attending a United We Roll rally in Ottawa back in 2019. And this was a convoy of gas and oil workers that ended up you know, getting taken over by groups that were said to be associated with white nationals. And I'm not sure that was a completely fair or accurate portrayal, but it only takes a few nuts to topple the cause. But when you don't stand for anything, then you stand for nothing. And these days, O'Toole seems to have lost his legs. And his lack of clarity is making him look weak, and it's just further fueling the alienation of the base. And so, look, the answer's simple. I'll write the talking point for you. All he has to say is, instead of calling these people racist and misogynists, Justin Trudeau underestimates the real anger and exhaustion across our country, and he must end this irresponsible vaccine mandate policy that is not based on science. It is not hard. Okay, there, I've written it for you. But what it does is it parks it right at Mr. Trudeau's feet, <laughs> and he just won't do it. And on the flip side, I mean, it's long past due that the media got tough. Just a little bit. Just get a little tough on Trudeau. It won't hurt you. I promise you. Because he gets away with nothing but vacuous talking points. He gets away with using inflammatory comments that malign those who serve his political gain. He's flip-flopped completely on a public health policy that's not recommended. Yet he got one whole question in French on Monday where he blamed the conservatives for fear-mongering and that's it. Trudeau created this wedge, so he should have to answer how a mandate on essential truckers is sound policy at a time when our supply chains are broken, and he won't. He doesn't have to, so he just keeps weaponizing the policy to deflect from his own failures, and he's got plenty of deflectors who are happy to help him. You got Maxime Bernier out there bussing in people to join the convoy. I mean, he doesn't care who he offends. He knows that he's tapping into anger, and so he'll capitalize on it. Then you get guys like Randy Hillier. Randy Hillier's out on Twitter, you know, today recklessly calling the transportation minister a terrorist. And I called him on it because it was a disgusting comment. And then he doubled down on it. Then he tripled down on it. Took some swipes at me. And that's fine. I got a thick skin. You can hate Omar Al-Ghabra and his politics all you want. But if Mr. Hillier thinks that, you know, whipping up this crap will bring support to his cause, then he's lost the plot. All he's done is turned this into a complete self-serving political gong show. It's everything wrong in politics today. And all it does is serve Justin Trudeau. And as unorganized as the convoy seems to be, those leading the charge, they've got to start taking control of this or it's going to hijack the cause. It already is. And fair or not, it doesn't matter. Fairness does not come into play in these, these matters. This convoy will be judged by the company it keeps. And they have a lot of support across this country. Regardless of what you hear, there is a lot of support in this country. But if they don't denounce those calling for things like the Prime Minister to be harmed or a Capitol Hill-style attack on Parliament, then they won't just lose their cause. Then they're going to guarantee Justin Trudeau stays in power forever. If politics are going to play games with you, you got to learn how to play them back. And uh, right now, it's just... uh Boy, what a mess. So what is wrong with kids wearing masks, you ask? Well, there could be a lot of things. And we're starting to get data out of the UK on some studies looking into masking, you know, efficacy and side effects. And the UKs reported that, you know, cloth masks do absolutely nothing to stop the spread of the Omicron variant. And N95 masks don't really offer kids much more protection because they don't fit their little faces properly. And so this is why we have seen European countries, the UK, dropping mask mandates. But now research out of the United States reveals that they have seen a 364% surge in childhood speech delays, specifically to babies and toddlers who, because they can't see their parents' faces, to mimic or watch how their mouth moves or shapes are sounded. Um... They just can't seem to be picking it up. And so it's not just the masks that have delayed speech development, but, you know, when toddlers and babies are locked down and away from the world, they're being deprived of essential interactions with human beings, crucial to their development. Alison Grant is a speech language pathologist and professor with the University of Ottawa, where she is in the science um, section where she looks into things like speech and language. Good to have you. Thank you. Um, we I'm I'm talking to you on the day that I had hoped to hear different news, but Doug Ford today uh, actually said that masks aren't going anywhere. So they're going to be around for some time. And so let me start with, is this a good idea? Do you think we should be keeping the masks going?
3: Um, Well, let me start with just talking about a little bit about communication development. You've mentioned some great aspects. There are definitely periods in early childhood development in which language and social development is really rapidly developing for the first few years of life. So these children are using verbal and facial cues to figure Mm -hmm. out how someone is feeling and to pick up on different environmental aspects. So definitely critical for these young kids. And then we have these masks that come into play and they can't necessarily see these verbal or facial cues like we would like them to do. So there are definitely concerns that wearing masks might interfere with these natural learning experiences and have an impact on communication and social skills for sure. Um, A key part of learning to communicate for a child is definitely watching the faces, mouths, and expressions of people closest to them. So babies are studying those faces intently. um, And the concern is those solid masks covering the face is is definitely understandable. However, right now, there are no known studies that suggest Mm -hmm. that the use of a mask negatively impacts a child's speech and language development. There are also other things that we need to consider, for example, visually impaired children develop speech and language skills at the same rate as their peers. Um, And this is because language is learned through hearing it. So that's something that we definitely need to consider as well. our masks, you know, can they impede on social and communicational aspects? Definitely, there are elements that we need to take in consideration, but we have to look at those other elements as well. So it's not just that the child sees what's sorry, it's not just what the child sees under the mask. It's also what he or she sees beyond the mask. So for example, Mm -hmm. what are the eyes doing? What is the body language Mm -hmm. telling us? It's also what he or she hears, like I was saying. So one can argue that masks can affect language development because it's harder to hear the person when speaking through the mask. And this is definitely something to consider. But I think it's what we need to do is we need to balance this out by allowing for interaction and communication opportunities at home, because at home there is no mask. We're in a natural, motivating and fun environment. So definitely where we're going to compensate for this mask wearing is at home with all those great interactions.
1: And so while you say that the um, data and the research is limited, um, you know, so. I'm not sure how much is anecdotal and how much is actually kind of firm. So we're in the early stages of it, but what are you starting to see? Like when parents come to you with their, with their toddler or their baby, what are some of the things that you are seeing that may raise a flag for you?
3: So we're seeing that sometimes all those great models that we can give, um, for example, you know, the kids are starting to learn how to do sounds and how to say words and, Kids are looking at an adult's face to see, how do I say that word? How do I do that sound? So they are missing those necess- those visual cues. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes we do see that parents are kind of worried about, you know, sound production, or like you were saying earlier, um, all that interaction and social aspect, because we learn by socializing. Uh, I was saying earlier that interaction is really, really key, we need to interact, communication is based on interaction. So although we can compensate that with having all these interactions at home and so forth. We also want the kids to have these opportunities to interact with other kids and you know get models mm-hmm. from those other kids and just have all those great social cues because social and communication, they kind of go hand in hand. It's really hard to separate them. So definitely what we're seeing is that Although, you know, parents can compensate and, you know, work on that communication development with their child at home, uh, with their interactions, there may be missing that child-on-child social interaction and all that comes with that social communication.
1: So what would your concern, you know, moving forward because the research is so limited and this has gone on so much longer than I think people um you know, thought. And I think the running kind of theme so far has been, you know, kids are resilient, they'll be okay, a mask won't hurt them. I mean, we make a lot of assumptions about things that we just don't know. And so I know that you're going to be, and many others in in pediatric care are going to be looking and researching these things. What are some of the things that you're most concerned about the longer this goes on?
3: I think we're really concerned about the social aspects. So, you know, having that Uh, less of that time to socialize with other children and to learn from other children and to socialize with, you know, different adults and just all those opportunities that we usually have because we go to the park and we go to play dates and we do all those types of different things. Those opportunities are less and less. So I think in the long term, we're worried about all those great opportunities that we usually have and that help us with our social and communication development what is going to happen now that those situations or those opportunities are no longer there.
1: And as far as long-term development, if a toddler or baby doesn't get these skills or is able to develop these things, you know, and meet their markers at a young age, does it stick with them? Is it something that can be corrected? Is it something that will, you know, will they face barriers long-term?
3: Um, So definitely, um, regardless of mass use, some children will take longer to reach certain speech and language milestones. And, you know, maybe with the mass, some of that will affect their speech and language milestones as well. So some of them may need some extra help, definitely. So speech and language delays and disorders are common in young children, but they definitely are um, treatable, I guess you could say. We can definitely do some therapy. So it's really important that if um, parents do have that they consult with a speech language pathologist. A lot of cities have um, free services where uh, a child can be screened just to see if, you know, uh, there is concern for their development or not, and then go on from there. So I think it's really important that parents do seek out those services if necessary, so that we can be more preventative.
1: Boy, oh boy, you guys all have your work cut out for you uh, after this, even though you've been working straight through this, but no question about it. A lot of questions uh, and uh, things to look into. Very much appreciate your time on this.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you for your time as well.
1: That is Alison Grant, who's a speech-language pathologist and a professor with the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Health Sciences Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology Program. It's a long title. Here we are, marking the... Uh, two-year anniversary of the first case of COVID reported in this country. And you might recall, it's hard to think back, but at the start of this pandemic, all the politicians were happily rolling out the talking points that, hey, we got this, SARS prepared us. And uh, now we know clearly none of them read the reports or anything that came out of the many commissions, the inquiries, the pandemic preparedness reports that Dr. Tam herself prepared. And I covered SARS as a reporter. It's 2003 when that hit, so I had to go to these things. And I remembered, you know, the warnings were pretty clear that if we don't properly invest in our hospitals, you know, if we don't stockpile PPE, if we do not learn from SARS, we will pay a price. And in 2007, a gentleman named Justice Archie Campbell tabled a blueprint. He laid out the issues. He laid out the solutions, and his message was clear. He said, quote, sars taught us lessons that can help us redeem our failures if we do not learn the lessons to be taken from sars however and if we do not make present government fixes the problems that remain we will pay a terrible price in the face of future outbreaks of virulent disease end quote sadly no one listened to the late judge Mario Possamé, I hope I got that right, is a pandemic planning expert, senior advisor to the late Justice Campbell. He is a forensic investigator and a senior advisor to Ontario SARS Commission. He joins us now. Good to have you.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Justice Campbell passed away shortly after that uh, report was issued. Um, you know, his message was clear. and And, you know, you think back to those days, SARS killed... 44 Canadians, 774 people worldwide, and he was very, very upset back then. Can you imagine what he would think today?
2: I think I think he would be heartbroken uh, to uh, uh, you know because he really laid out a blueprint. He really laid out a plan that could have prevented you know some of the worst successes of, uh, of the COVID response. They could have saved lives. Could have could have saved illness. And uh, to, to have seen that not been acted on, I think it would have been. Uh, pretty heartbreaking because he was a he was so passionate about trying to protect uh, Canadians
1: yeah I mean I think many of us were uh, lulled into a false sense of security that because we had had SARS we had um, you know the experience to to understand what was going on and yet right from the start whether it was getting ahead of this thing I mean no one got ahead there was no sense of urgency and, and I think a lot of people are saying, well, what happened? How is it that the PPE was thrown out? How is it that no one bothered to look at the stocks and supplies to see if we had it? How come, you know, and now we look back to the 15 years of, of lack of investment and in proper staffing, uh, shoring up nurses and making sure that we had enough and paying them well enough and, and ICUs and all these things. None of it's been done.
2: Yeah, it is it's, it's uh, it is shocking when you, when you look back on it through, through the lens of the SARS Commission because... For example, you mentioned PPE. Well, in in 2007, on Justice Campbell's recommendation, Ontario set aside 55 million uh, N95 respirators in a strategic reserve for exactly an event like like the pandemic. But in 2017, um, that reserve uh, was destroyed uh, because it had Mm -hmm. expired, and no one replaced it. Now, it was no secret that uh, that this went on. It was highlighted in the... uh, after report, yeah, but no one took notice. You know, the uh, the chief medical officer of the day, uh, Dr. Williams, did not notice. Did not uh, sound the alarm. Um, uh, nobody, no one said nothing about it.
1: Yeah, it's very frustrating. Dr. Tam herself wrote the pandemic preparedness. And and it's almost like, did anyone read it? Because we had months, we had an ocean, we had so much distance between us and what was going on in Wuhan at the time that they had a lot of time to say, okay, let's check. Do we have A, B, C, D? What's the pandemic preparedness? What's the plan? What's the blueprint? And I don't know if anyone looked at it, because we have been reactive ever since. But The Justice, um, Justice Campbell said, you know, don't wait, don't wait for the science to be right. You've got to get ahead of this thing and start to get systems in place to keep people safe. Um, He talked about having, making sure nurses don't go room to room so that they bring infection to other people. Uh, He talked about the spread versus, you know, aerosol versus droplets. We haven't been able to figure that out. Everything that he talked about, literally, um, you wonder why they bothered even having commissions and inquiries.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. You know, you, you mentioned the, the, the pandemic plan that uh, Dr. Tam oversaw. Well, you know, you, you look back on it, and what Justice Campbell said is that we have to be prepared for the unknown. SARS is unknown unknown disease. Uh, COVID is, is a new pathogen. But mm-hmm. you know, the Canadian pandemic plan is called the Canadian influenza pandemic plan. So, you know, under Dr. Tam's leadership, we prepared for an influenza pandemic. We did not prepare for a pandemic by a new pathogen. And, uh, you know, Dr. New, uh, Tam's deputy, uh, in the fall of 2010, admitted that was a mistake. You know, that, that we prepared for the flu, but not for a new pathogen. And uh, th- that was just a, a serious strategic mistake.
1: Yeah, there were many. I mean, uh, you know, one day there will be a reckoning, I think, for all of this. But then again, we're going to hear the the typical, you know, um, political wrangling where they'll all say, look, we're going to do a deep dive. We'll never be caught off guard again. And we'll get the commissions going again. We'll get the inquiries. We'll get the inquest. That'll all happen again. I think the point is it never should have happened to begin with. Uh, SARS was a very dangerous um, situation. And for whatever reason, back in those days, we handled it much, much better than what we have just been through in the last couple of years.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that, that happened during SARS was that the, the decision to go to airborne precautions, uh, you know, you recall that during SARS, you know, all the healthcare workers were using N95s was a bit of an accident. And it happened uh, without the input of the infectious disease specialist. So uh, you know, D- Dr. Lowe and uh, and Dr. Young, who are really running the show, uh, they mm. were really uncomfortable with SARS, and they decided to uh, to go for airborne precautions. But you know, the the infectious disease community, um, many of whom are still uh, you know in, in positions of charge, felt it was unnecessary, and they you know they said, uh, no, no, it's uh, it's droplet spread, it's overkill to have N95. But what happened is that a year after SARS, in, 20, in 2004, um, uh, a couple of studies came out that proved that SARS was an airborne disease. And, and, and what Justice Campbell took from that was that it proved the precautionary principle. It, it proved that it was, it, it was the right decision to err on the side of caution, go to airborne precautions, even though we didn't know for sure whether SARS was an airborne disease. And, mm-hmm. and that was a, a, a fundamental part of uh, his decision to highlight the importance of the precautionary principle, because it was uh, it was validated after the fact by science, and it proved that it made sense to err in the side of caution. So, you know, fast forward to COVID nineteen, and many of the same infectious disease people uh, were, were now in charge and were influential yeah. uh, over the province, and you know they said. Uh, right after that, uh, we can rule out airborne transmission. This is non airborne disease, You don't need the precautionary principle. Uh, we can go ahead and treat it as if it was uh it, it was droplets. and it was a, uh, it was a yeah. grievous, grievous mistake.
1: Just quickly before I let you go, I've got about thirty seconds. Uh, this has got to, this has got to anger you and your colleagues and those who are working on all these reports and did the, that did the heavy lifting.
2: Well, it's it, it, it's heartbreaking because. Yeah. it didn't have to be so bad, you know we
1: um, yeah,
2: you know to all those families that lost loved ones I mean it's yeah i I don't know how to how we could trace them.
1: We will talk again, Mario. I very much appreciate your time and uh, thank you for the conversation.
2: I really appreciate it. thanks so much.
1: That is Mario Passame, and I should have asked him Po I should have asked him for the pronouncer, nonetheless, he was part of that pandemic uh, Is with um, Justice Campbell doing the forensic investigation but nonetheless they must just be shaking their heads and we will keep talking about it because heads should roll you know in politics nothing is ever done by accident and by uh, you know five months to a provincial election i'm not at all surprised to read in the toronto star today that the ford government says it's close to inking a deal with the trudeau government on ten dollar a day childcare. and i think a lot of people will see this as a game changer certainly the uh Trudeau and Ford government will stick a feather in their cap and boast about this, but who will this benefit? Ontario, unlike other provinces, already pays for a 3.6 billion dollar all-day kindergarten. It started at 1 billion, it's now 3.6 billion. But what I haven't really heard anyone bring up is how will this help those who work things like shift work, who don't have a 9 to 5 job or work the hours traditionally laid out for childcare? I mean, behind the headlines, are we actually getting anything for this massive, massive investment? Chris Sims is a BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having us. So um, now Doug Ford has come out on radio this afternoon and said, yep, they're very close. And so, look, Hmm. there's a lot of politics at play on this. uh, But, you know, unlike other provinces, we have extraordinarily expensive daycare. We have very few spaces. Um, this deal, I guess, is looking at giving Ontario $10.2 billion, um, and they want to make sure that it does things like, uh, you know, serves nonprofit and profit uh, care. But the bottom line is um, we have very expensive care in this, and, and I don't know who it's going to benefit.
0: That's a great question because not everybody works, you know, from 9 o'clock until 4.30, Monday to Friday, which is what a lot of these sort of daycare programs usually pays for and also in nova scotia they've inked a deal yes but apparently the way that they did their deal it's got some family-run daycares and some independent daycares about to be boarded up Uh, i personally Mm -hmm. know people who are going to lose their daycare providers and so it definitely isn't a one-size-will-fit-all lots of people work shift work lots of people will have say you know the one parent working out of the house and then switching off shifts with the other parent so Everybody's life is different. Our concern is that this will wind up spending a lot of money, but won't wind up getting the, the service that people need. In Quebec, for example, it started out in the late 90s at around $300 million. Now it's close to $3 billion, And mm-hmm. even with inflation, that's a six-fold increase in cost. And yeah. there's still people on a massive waiting list.
1: Yeah, yeah, you raise a good question. I mean, I point to the all-day kindergarten, which started at a billion. Now that's $3.6 yep. $3. billion. Um, and those costs will continue to go up. Um, but, you know, we're swimming in debt. We are swimming in debt in this country. And um, this is a program that starts at the, you know, $10 billion just for Ontario alone, I think. But the, the the bigger question, though, becomes just like what we saw with healthcare, where you get the federal government on board, they're 50-50 partners, everything's, you know, hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, you know... A couple of decades ago decades ago the federal government says, Yeah, yeah, we don't want to pay our, our share of the health care, so the provinces will pick it up. And so it's great to say, yeah, the federal government is gonna help the provinces do this, but they tend to disappear after a few years. Yes, exactly. It's something
0: that Paige McPherson at the Fraser Institute, both of us know her well from our Sun News Days. Um, she's done a lot of deep dives into this and well, you know, it sounds good at the outset, hey, you know, affordable daycare, five bucks, ten bucks here and there for everybody. Um, The devil's in the details, and usually it doesn't work out. And so this is what we're saying. Hey, folks, uh, we're already more than a trillion dollars in debt. They have added around half a trillion dollars to the federal debt just since COVID. So the money is just flying out the door. It's also adding to our inflationary problem because when the Bank of Canada, creates more currency. It often uses that currency to buy up Canadian deficit spending which, of course, then helps inflation roll along. So if they say, yeah. oh, we're getting this money from the Fed, <laughs> that's still you. You're still the taxpayer. So it doesn't matter if you're in Scarborough or Hamilton or Prior in Ontario. If they say, oh, it's okay, it's coming from the federal government, folks, <laughs> that's still coming out of your pocket.
1: Yeah, it's just a different pocket. There's not a pocket on your body that a government is not taking from. But, you know, it's interesting because... I think this policy will play very, very well to the urban centers, Um, you know, a place like Toronto, where it would benefit those in the public sector who work nine to five Monday to Friday. Mm -hmm. But if you're a shift worker, you're a nurse, you're a, you know, a a police officer or you're uh, working at Costco and your husband or your whatever spouse works at a different shift work, it's not going to benefit them. And that's that's what I'm waiting someone to ask is what about those? Like, I'm a perfect example. This would not work for me because I work an odd set of hours where it just wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily work.
0: You're right and a lot of people do that to their bartenders or their hairstylists or their waitresses, you know, they have shift work, they're a bus driver, they work the graveyard shift, they run a convenience store that's open 24/7, you know, not everybody has those daytime hours. And so this is what we're saying, it's better to give tax breaks and tax cuts to families no matter what shape or size they are, or no matter, you know, what shift they work, so they can choose what to do with that money. And if a company, say Acme Corp, okay, has a lot of people that are employed within it, and they have small little kids, give that company a tax break so they can build their own little daycare within their physical building. I know lots of parents, especially moms, that would have loved to have had something like that, where their little one is, you know, just a couple feet down the hallway, and it's easily accessible daycare, rather than this kind of big government cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all thing. Um, government mm-hmm. doesn't do a lot of things very well. And we're worried that they're going to spend a <laughs> lot think? of money, that's an understatement, yeah. I know, spend a lot of money, and they're going to wind up just giving people access to a wait list instead yeah. of access yeah. to daycare. Same thing with the health care.
1: Well, if they don't, yeah, the situation, if they don't get more spaces, it will never work in a place like Toronto where there are not nearly enough spaces, um, and it's going to just balloon in costs. Nonetheless, we're five months for an election, so... It does play to the smart politics, because now uh, Steve Del Duca can't say, what about the daycare? Or the NDP can't say, what about the daycare? And and, and frankly, Chris, I'm beginning to think that people just don't care about the debt and the deficit. I mean, this is Ford's, uh, you know, bread and butter. He ran on this. Um, But I don't think after all the spending, people, it's like they've become addicted to it.
0: Ontario has the biggest debt of any sub, uh, sub-sovereign sub national group, so that means that of any state or province, apart from a national government, any sub-sovereign mm-hmm. government, it's got the biggest one. And federally speaking, we're not going to balance that budget. This is the Parliamentary Budget Officer saying this himself. Yeah. We're not going to balance the federal budget until the year 2070. So all those all kids be, all day long kids gone. <laughs> take care, they're paying for yeah. it. Those actual infants are going to be paying for this yeah. for the rest of their lives.
1: Well, they'll be paying for everything for the rest of their lives, including <laughs> the last know. two years of a pandemic. But uh, that's a sad reality, and it's a... Uh... Another reckoning coming our way. Well nonetheless, uh, appreciate you breaking this down and I know uh, Paige is digging into the data to see how it does and who it benefits and the, the cost uh, benefits of this. It's never it's never means tested, but we both know that. No, it never is. that's
0: never is unfortunately. Yeah, it is. and it can often benefit the, the wealthier more than the working class. Again, unfortunately, it keeps coming around this way. It's like a bad version of war. <coughs> and it keeps
1: landing on bankruptcy. There you go. Chris, appreciate the chat. We'll talk again. Take care. That is Chris Sims with the BC uh, Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And uh, again, we're waiting for some data to come out because I want to know who benefits. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. Thanks for listening to On Point.